If you love all things gardening, why not join us at our Spring Fair from the 3rd to the 5th of May at Bewley in Hampshire. You'll find everything you need to kickstart the season. Find out more at bbcgardenersworldfair.com. See you there. Want a website with unmatched power, speed and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking... But I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Today I'm joined by Fergus Garrett, the head gardener of internationally renowned Great Dickstar. And I'm so delighted to kick off the series talking with Fergus because I think all of the topics that are coming up have been encompassed through the process and gardening that has occurred at Great Dixter over the years. Whether it's creating their own compost, being peat-free from 2006, taking a huge insight into the biodiversity that surrounds this garden, Great Dixter have been pioneers in gardening in a more sustainable way. And I'm so thrilled that he can be here because the work that's been carried out at Great Dixter over 30 years of gardening can now be really translated and brought home to our gardens. Fergus Garrett, I have to give a huge warm welcome to you on the Growing Greener podcast. I'm so glad um, that you could join me in this series. Welcome. Well, it's my pleasure. Nice to see you again. Fergus, I obviously have gotten to know you over the last few years, but like most people have looked at the Great Dixter Garden from afar and visited it, um, are aware of your work and know that your contribution into our industry is amazing. But on those times that I get to see you, which isn't hugely often, meeting you is as if 
it's your first day at Dixter. You are still so passionate after 30 years. And I just wanted to start off by talking about where that spark, fizz, energy comes from on a daily basis. Well, it comes from the the place and the people within it. I think it's a combination of both. First of all, you know, Christopher Lloyd, who who I gardened alongside, and I was very lucky to to be alongside him. I mean, he he took a fresh look on on everything. He never kept the place in aspic uh, in any way. He was always inquisitive. He's always sort of wondering about new plants and new combinations and new ways of looking things. And and so the, the place, the management under him wasn't static at all. As well as that, he had a huge laugh. You know, he, it was his home, so he, he enjoyed it. And so after he passed away in 2006, I thought, well, actually, you know, the place has got to make a living, obviously, and earn its keep. And But I'd never, ever wanted to grow fat on its name. And so I thought, well, actually, it's got to be vibrant and go forward. And that was in our blood anyway. And it does that by just having a fresh look at it on a regular basis, sort of never ever thinking that this is the way it's got to be done, you know, always learning, always trying new things. And then doing that with a team of people who are also vibrant, you know, some of them have been there for many, many years. Some of them have come and gone and new members joined the team. And then we've got all those glorious students and volunteers and people who just fall by us and they themselves give it a certain energy you know it's not cliquey at all it's just all sorts of people a diverse range of people in together within the place some green woodworking some estate workers some gardeners some nursery you know and, and as well as the people in the offices and and so on and it's just like this extraordinary high-spirited community that you garden with and so so when you step into that atmosphere on a daily basis you know it's exciting the people are as as exciting as as the garden itself you know so it's, it's sort of multifaceted in that region because i'm you know i'm a plant nerd so looking into a fritillary or a, or a magnolia or, or whatever it is you know a, a dahlia or something is is fascinating for me but then along with that you throw in all the life that's in this place from the biodiversity to the little sort of bees and the moths and all those sort of insects, that microcosm of life that lives in the grass, you know, that adds another sort of spirit to it as, as well. And then you've got all those, those mad characters and unusual characters and sort of that, that are part of our community. And that in itself adds something else. And, you know, and then you've got all the experiments on top of that and, and so on and all the visitors that come in, you know, so you, it's, it's, you get high on all that stuff and that's why it's, and if, if, and if you didn't get high on all that stuff, it's time to move on to, to another project, I think. I mean, as you were saying that, I literally could feel the reflection of the team in the garden and the garden on the team and the visitors coming in. You know, you definitely paint a picture of that layering and the diversity, which is, I guess, what we're asking all the time to be within a garden. And it feels to me as if the space at Great Dixter is faceted in such a way that it's, it's all the way through. It's in the DNA by the sounds of it. Yeah, I mean, it's just being respectful. You know, we a few years back, Eric, we did a biodiversity audit, which which um, showed the place to be extremely rich. You know, richer than the the countryside around it. You know, so we I always thought that the you know the countryside around it 
the pasture land, the woodlands, etc., and the farmland, the hedgerows, all of that in the in the Sussex world would be very diverse, and that stuff would be flowing into the garden and making the garden rich. But actually, the entomologists and the ecologists said, no, it's the other way around. You're an oasis here. You you've got remnants of stuff that would have been in the countryside 400 years ago. You're so rich, and it's flowing from it's going from the garden out into the countryside. So, I mean, that was really quite interesting and suddenly made you think that actually these things aren't coming into your space. You are in their space. They were there before you. So you've got to really handle this place with the utmost respect to the community that shares it with you. And I don't mean a human community. I mean, I mean everything or that living community. And that, that sort of, you know, we always garden sensitively, but this made you garden even more sensitively. I like what you just said then about the fact that we are within the space of the wildlife. How can people start to really tune into that and start to maybe reflect and rethink about how they're gardening to get re-energised, to get themselves really going again and into the swing of nature? It's important not to be too prescriptive because I think that diversity actually leads to diversity. To, you know, so if you know, not everybody needs to have a meadow. The short grass is as important as as a meadow as as mud is important. You know, so I think one thing for sure is that we we drop the chemicals, try and garden without them. That's really quite important. And I think the other thing is is also to be aware of what is around you. Try and educate yourself. And then there are sort of easy things that people can do. A bit of water in their garden, even if it comes out of a bucket, is important for things to lay their eggs and, and so on. And, and um, not being overly tidy, leaving some of the stems and the winter skeletons up over winter and, and so on. You know, there are things that that sort of element of detritus in your garden is, is important as, as, as well. And growing a diversity of vegetation, of um, a long season of flowers, so, so that there's a long season of pollen and nectar. I mean, essentially, all those sort of things that we're talking about need somewhere to to eat, somewhere to sleep, and somewhere to breed. You know, and and so having a range of habitats really important. Having a range of food crops really important, and having a sort of range of nesting sites. So don't worry if you're you know, a fence post has got a little crack in it because that could be home to something, you know, try and put up sort of have log piles and and, and so on. But if, you know, Dixter's a in pretty intensive garden. It's very colourful. It's, it's got lots of dahlias and those sort of things in it, but it's still very, very rich in, in diversity. So it doesn't need to be a bramble patch in order to achieve this. You can have an ornamental garden that is rich in biodiversity. So I think that as, as we're sort of do a little bit more and drop the chemicals and, and try and increase the diversity in our gardens and also think that our small space, you know, I've got a small back garden, but that along with my neighbours' back gardens and along with the little sort of empty spaces and hedgerows and the odd trees in the, in the, in the city that I live in, all of that will add up to something, you know, and create that mosaic habitat. So don't think that you need a big space in order to do some good. People's small gardens will add up to something. 
And Dixter's got a lot of diversity. Dixter's got these porous buildings, those old buildings where things can nest in the cracks and so on. But, you know, a town and city will have that as well. There'll be eaves where things can nest in. There'll be old fence posts that things can nest in. So Dixter's got short grass and a town and city will have short grass as well. Dixter's got water. Well, not everybody will have water in their, in their gardens, but, you know, there will be water in some people's gardens and that will add up to something. Dixter's got hedgerows. You'll have hedgerows in towns and cities. Dixter's got... Uh, long season borders and a wide range of ornamental plants as well as wild plants rubbing shoulders. Well, a town and city will have that as well. Dixter's got long grass. A town and city can have long grasses. You know, so, so it's the same system, but just sort of scaled up. And I don't see why we can't sort of make these spaces work like that. Of course, there are lots of people striving to make these spaces work obviously. And I think it has to be done with, with a bit of knowledge because what we don't want to do is, is start digging up a roadside verge because it's just got scrappy grass and brambles and a few nettles on there and put a flower-rich meadow on there where actually that scrappy grass may be supporting a wide range of things. That's that, and so and which we're destroying the habitat of. So that's why those sort of getting into bed with all those ecologists is a really good thing because they'll point you in the right direction to say such and such a site has got this spider on it and it needs a long thatch habitat. So then we can act intelligently and preserve that long thatch habitat. A site may be really good for invertebrates and suddenly we plant trees there and it becomes a shady site and we haven't got, you know, so sort of that bit of direction from top is really good. And that, that has to come through, that has to filtrate through people like the councils and politicians, landscape architects. All of these people have to take a degree of responsibility over this and work with a little bit of knowledge rather than just thinking we need to put flower beds everywhere or we need to put meadows everywhere. And that's what we did at Dixter, you see. And I, all those years ago, Arrett, um, I was trying to create orchid-rich meadows. And my wife, who's a zoologist, said to me, why are you trying to create another orchid-rich meadow? You know, why are you trying to do this? Do you know the reason for it? And I said, well, you know, there's that sort of fact that 98% of our species-rich meadows, lowland meadows have disappeared since the Second World War. That's why we're trying to do it. And she said, but I think you've got enough orchid-rich meadows. You need more diversity. You need more scrub. You need more bare areas to get the diversity, she said. And so, so if you do that biodiversity audit, it will tell you the way to go with this and pinpoint certain species. Then you can make you know, intelligent decisions on whether you're going to try and increase a certain species or go for the diversity within it. It'll, tell you, it'll direct you in the, in the right way. I mean, that's really interesting in the sense that somebody listening might think, well how do I get my hands on an entomologist or an ecologist? Because, you know, that always feels like it's quite grand. And, and that you, you know, especially if you've got a small garden, they might not be able to get access to something like that for Fergus. Where would we start as in, as in a basic perspective? Because you're right, in the widest, bigger spaces, and those of us that work professionally, it, it isn't enough just to say, I've put up a tree tick. But in terms of within the smaller garden, which you've given us some fantastic elements that need to be w within it, how do we start to get sort of do our own order, if you like? 
every sort of county or every borough will have their sort of county ecologist and some of them have their biodiversity officers and that's what I'm saying the councils and the politicians have to take a degree of responsibility because you know they can't go and inspect everybody's garden they can't do that but they can say hey look this area we've got a nature reserve outside this this town and city and this is where the longhorn bee is and it could be in your garden so in order for it to be in your garden you need to grow these sort of plants and so and, and we need to also so have in our parks, a, a, you know, legume-rich wildflower meadows that have got, you know, perhaps things like bird's foot trefoil in them or, or tufted vetch and so on. So, so I think that direction can come from that. And it's about educating and laying down those sort of little sort of bits of advice that people can take or leave. You know, you don't want everybody to force everybody to do this, but it just sort of that little bit of education from top really helps and of course also working at it from bottom up as well because there's somewhere like Hastings for instance there's so many really brilliant community groups and getting all those community leaders together and saying this is what we should try and you know encourage Hastings hasn't got enough scrub within it so if you've got a community garden try and have a bit of scrub in there because x y and z would like to be in there so and I think it has just to be a concerted effort by everybody coming together to actually do something against this sort of crashing biodiversity that we've been um, and, and not expecting just the countryside to do it because it, the towns and cities can do it, suburban areas can do it as, as well. The whole village around us, you know, several villages around us have been getting biodiversity audits. You know, they've got people within their community that actually, and volunteer groups that, that have been doing audits for them so that they know which way to go with, with certain parts of their, of their community. And certainly councils will have that sort of expertise in their teams. One thing that you said, which was, I think, the very enlightening thing about the audit report at Dickstar, was the fact that those highly visual borders... I mean, I remember the first time coming to Dickstar, you know, with a gardening head on, not my fashion head anymore, and seeing those and trying to identify plants and colours and combinations was all about the visual element and then roll forward when, you know, I had the, the great pleasure to be able to interview about that audit report. It's what goes on behind the visual, isn't it? And I think we've got the great thing in horticulture and gardens where we are saturated with visual impact, but actually it, it sounds to me that we've got to get behind that layer, haven't we? Which is what you were saying, that the garden has been feeding also feeding the wider environment. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, I, I'm not saying that we should go out into the countryside and, and start creating gardens left, right and centre and, and, you know, planting sort of exotics everywhere. I think we should improve what's in the countryside and be very careful of local provenance and, and you know, improve our hedgerows and our sort of habitats within the countryside. But also I think it's really important to, to realise that, that gardens can play a part in this as well. And it's not just playing a part in supporting the biodiversity that a garden like Dexter supports, but also in terms of educating people as well and bringing them closer to nature, to actually making them aware. You know, because people who go out and enjoy the countryside are always already a converted crowd, but there's lots of people who aren't converted to this, and gardens can bridge that gap. 
you know, it's blurring those edges between horticulture and ecology. And everybody out there, really, on, on the whole, wants to do something really positive about this. And, and, and if you've got your own little space that you can do something positive with, you know, you, don't, you can't do everything. But if you can just do, feel that you're doing something positive, you know, that's a great feeling to have. And, and if it then has that sort of visual attraction and looks bright and beautiful, and if you like that sort, you know, sort of thing, fantastic as well. You know, and I think... Our cities can be greener and more colourful, and every space matters in this as well. You know, we both know John Little, don't we? And great, sort of admire him greatly for the stuff that he's he's doing. But you know, from tops of bin covers to bicycle storage things to bus stop shelters to you know to all those little sort of brownfield sites you've got in there all of that space matters I'm so glad that you mentioned John Little because we're going to be speaking to him later in the series and he is doing great work and I can see how you're so invested in what he's doing it's a great match I can see how it very much dovetails into Dixter because he comes at it very much about the habitat creation for creatures and obviously by definition you get plants that come from that so he never just thinks about the plant as much as he loves plants he thinks about the fact that I have to create habitat and that's where the richness I guess comes into those sites I know when he he looks at brownfield sites for inspiration because they've been disturbed they've been used and and nature finds its way through so I guess that's the two things now we've got to start being much more married up on Yes, there's our love of plants and flowers and tick we get in the pollens prolonged through the season, but it's this habitat creation because that's the bit I saw really sparked in you those years ago. And I'm not saying that you never did look at those things, at Fergus. Clearly, I'd never say that. Um, but but I felt that that was something that was a new door, if you like, into into the site. Yeah, it was, absolutely. I mean, I, I I studied ecology at university and all of that, but it wasn't just didn't seem real. And you know what the, what it was, Aris, is that in my early days at Dixter, you'd see the woodpeckers and the badgers and the interesting spiders and the butterflies at Dixter and the orchids. And you'd say, well, yeah, this is a rich, you know, we're doing our bit for wildlife. But what really sort of opened my eyes was actually looking at all those little nooks and crannies and those little holes and finding solitary bees that don't look like bees. You know, they, they look like flies or something. And, and, and setting a moth trap and seeing that, that extraordinary range of moths that were as beautiful, if not more beautiful, than the butterflies that were in those traps, you know, it just sort of just heightened the senses. And, and so every little space became interesting. You know, a dry stone wall became interesting, not because of the plants that were coming out of it, but because of all the pollinators that were going in and out of it. Little, little holes in old rotten bits of timber, you know, that we because we recycle a lot of our material. Um, that became interesting because, you know, there was like mining bees using the sort of solitary bees using the holes in there. And, and then those areas of lawn that had been worn that we'd re-turf on an annual basis when our sort of entomologist pointed out these little holes within there and the, the wasps that were then using those holes and carrying their prey down into there and laying their eggs, etc. all of it. And suddenly we thought, well, actually, we shouldn't be repairing these areas because that's just another habitat. I then became even more like a child, you know, because I was just looking at, it just, it doubled the interest within that garden. Suddenly, you know, it wasn't just about the grass snakes and the woodpeckers. It was about everything that moved. 
And then very interesting thing happened is that, you know, because in, in 2006, 2007, we did one of the first things, we stopped using peat because peat used to, we were a, sort of soil-based compost anyway. So peat was only a fraction of our compost, but I dropped that out completely at that. When Christo died, I thought, right. And then I let the edges grow a bit more so that the place became charming and so on. And then we gradually, we wouldn't spray a lot, but in those days, maybe we spray four times a year. So we dropped that down within a year to twice a year, and then we just got rid of all the, just stopped spraying completely. And it was chaos for the first couple of years, really, because just suddenly things started going mad and there was an imbalance and so on. And everybody's thinking, what on earth is he doing to this place? You know, does he know what he's doing? But then gradually something happened and it clicked into this sort of very balanced system at Dixter. I'm not saying it's always going to be balanced, but it, it's suddenly the pests would arrive, but then they would disappear very quickly because the predators were there, you know, and so nothing became a problem. And of course, slugs and snails were a problem. So we were just always experimenting with, you know, building up sort of the habitats for their predators or using wool, or we used ferric phosphate for a bit as, as well. But gradually we sort of got rid of all of those things. And Dexter seems to be in just such a wonderful balance. And so you think, actually, you don't even have to think about whether you need to use a chemical or not here because it just seems to all work out pretty well. It mean, You know, it, it means that our hostas have got little nibbles around the edges of the leaves and so on, and we have to be careful with our dahlias when we put them out. So we put wool around them and sometimes gorse clippings around them. You know, there are always sort of things like that, and the badgers have been digging up all the planting that we've been doing and, and so on. It just felt that the place is rich not only with the people that are in it, but not only because of the people who come and visit that are part of that extended family that loves the place and the horticultural community, but the place is rich because of the flowers and the richness there, but it's also rich as a result of all that wildlife that's here. You know, it's just just makes you feel really good to be in a place like this. But then you look at your next steps and you think, well, actually, what about your carbon footprint, you know, on the place? So what, what about the way you use water? Can we, can we be more clever? So we've been going down this route of using less water and be very targeted with it, you know. And so you'd expect a garden like this to be watered on a weekly basis, but it isn't. The most we watered last year, for instance, in the drought, we was four times in the whole year. You know, some areas didn't get water. It's about resilient plants and it's about making sure that we look after our soil so that there's enough compost in there, that there's enough cover on the ground so that the soil is not heating up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's the next step, which will mean that there'll be difficult decisions to take um, in a garden like this, um, but there'll be easy ones that will take first of all, easy ones like composting more and buying less compost in getting rid of plastic, you know, just gradually getting rid of all the plastic, you know, um, even the amount we have for recycling, reducing that by, in, in our places like the Loggia and the restaurants and those sort of places, that we just look at our carbon footprint right the way through and make those decisions to make it even a, a better place, you know, throughout. It is just really fascinating to hear all of those interventions that you talk about, all of that way of being, because I know that a lot of it has just inherently been because you're a good gardener, you know, and, and you believe in, in just 
the basics of good gardening. And then these extra layers that have come in or understanding of how it has a positive impact on the environment. You know, it's times, Fergus, you know, I'm guessing you'd have had those challenging times when people felt of Dixter as being high horticulture, you know, because of those borders. Was you ever being taken seriously by other ecologists because it's only a garden, you know, (laughs) uh, that type of thing. So how have you sort of carried on going in in that way that you've had to take maybe criticism from members of the public of, oh, did you see that the hostas have been eaten or what's going on with that bare patch of lawn? Do Do you get a lot of that or do you feel that your engagement with visitors enables them to understand that patch of lawn is is left bare, madam, because we're allowing it to do its thing for the environment? I mean, we don't go to that trouble to say, you know, other than doing it on sort of occasions like this to explain why the lawn is bare in parts. I think Dixter's always been a Marmite place in, in that it's, it's some people have loved the wildness of it and other people have, have, have not liked it. It goes in many directions, you know, it, it, just the fact that we're a garden. Quite a lot of ecologists have said, no, 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 it's not, it's artificial, it's not right, it won't have diversity. When I asked all these sort of, for instance, the British Arachnological Society to come, they didn't want to come to Dixter because they said it's a garden, we may as well go to the nature reserve next door because the garden's going to be pretty sterile. And then they came and realized how rich it was and they they came back and back and, you know, we've got sort of hundreds of spiders that they've seen here and some very rare ones and sort of, but, you know, so they realize that it was a special place. So it's about convincing that community that gardens can have a role to play in supporting life, but also it's convincing the gardening community, like we used to have to convince them in the 90s, that meadows were a part of a garden. You know, people used to look at our meadows in the early 90s and write letters of complaints saying it should be the other side of the hedge rather than within the garden. But it's it's really interesting because people's perception of what a garden is has started to change. That's, that's been happening, you know, where people have sort of embraced the wilder side of gardens, you know. So when people come into our car parks and the, the whole place is full of cow parsley and they have to sort of brush past all this vegetation, they absolutely like that. They love that sort of the sounds and the movement that comes from the meadows as well, you know. And so that's really great. That's been a really important change of, of, of late. And now the people then to convince now are the brigade that think that just because you've got naturalistic style planting that you must be good for ecology. You know, that, that just because you've arranged your plants in a mosaic system means that you are, you know, you're doing something right for the insects and so on. And an old-fashioned, inverted commas, place like Dixter isn't doing the same thing. And so you're trying to convince, you know, and I come across this all the time because they, they look at a garden like Dixter and think it's old-fashioned whereas it's a highly progressive place, you know, and it's a forward-thinking place. But they don't see that. All they see is the dahlias and the bedding and the old-fashioned style of gardening. And they think, oh, it's set in its way and it's not going to have any sort of wildlife value at all. And it's quite sort of static. And they're the people that don't know us, you know. And what I want to do is I want to fight for sort of I want to fight for those people that grow dahlias. I want to fight for those people that want to, you know, have dwarf conifers. I want to fight for those people that want stripes on their lawns, as well as fighting for those people who wanted meadows and, and allow brambles and nettles and so on. So I think there's, there's room for everybody in all of this, but there isn't, there isn't room for chemicals in this, all that spraying that happens. 
But there is there is room for diversity in all of this. Well, that that kind of goes full circle, doesn't it, in terms of how you started off, in terms of why is Dixter so vibrant still? Why are you so vibrant still after all of this time? And it's been in, in the heart of diversity. For me, having, you know, gotten to know Dixter a bit more, gotten to know the team a little bit more, you know, I'm not down there all the time. I wish I was. But just looking in, I think that Great Dixter is a place where people can draw a lot of inspiration from. You talk about it potentially being Marmite. I get that in terms of Dahlia snobs. I love a Dahlia. That's fine. But other people don't. That's also fine. But in terms of the approach that you're doing, Fergus, and really now making sure that you and the team You've always shared, don't get me wrong, but really sharing the layer that you can't necessarily see. It's been hugely important and I think really empowering for gardeners because you're one of our top gardens in the UK and and internationally known. When I was uh, fortunate enough to go to the States not so long ago to listen to uh, Americans, it was all about Dixter. Have you been to Dixter, Arit? And I'm like, yeah. They were asking me had I been. They were checking to make sure that I'd been. But the point about that is it's the reach. And and with the reach is when we can, um, I guess, empower people. And to see a, a garden that's modelling itself on all of the key principles of sustainability, that's what is enabling us to uh, keep motivated. So for that, I, I, I thank you hugely. Well, we're all, we're all in it together, aren't we? You know, so, so from those... From our parks to people's front and back gardens to roadside verges to meeting places for you know where people can walk and sort of it's sort of so important for well-being to those brownfield sites to people doing really interesting work on rooftops to you know what John's doing what Richard Scott's doing in Liverpool and and you know we're all in this together to actually make a difference because. This green industry that we're in should be greener and we can do it and still keep colourful places. But also we can also teach people to embrace a bramble and embrace, you know, what what a nettle gives to us and what a dandelion does and and so on. Slowly by slowly, not everybody, you know, we don't all have to like the same thing. We, we, I mean, the, what makes it so interesting is that we all like different things and we like different levels of wildness and looseness as well. But all of it can work together because it creates that mosaic of diversity, you know. And, and I think it's just wonderful. And you've been a champion of this that that we're all talking about it now. You know, and and I think we should talk about it in a way and come together in a way without being divisive over it as, as well. So if, if we start sort of talking down to people who love dahlias, you know, where is that going to get us? You know, where is that going to We should be all coming together and saying, let's do something collectively. And what do we need to do? We need to educate ourselves. And obviously could be talking with you forever about this, um, but we, we've come to a draw. But I've really been so inspired by the, the work that you're putting out there more and more and more, really, really feeding us all with this information. And it's um, it's fantastic that we can go back to our own patch of land. And remember that we're custodians. I know that something I heard you talk about the other day, if you think of yourself as a custodian of the land, you have to look after it rather than thinking it's my patch. We, we're looking after it for someone else for, in the 
future. So, and I know that's what you're doing such an excellent job at at Great Dixter. So, thank you so much, Fergus, for your time and uh, and your insights. And um, I shall look forward to our next chat. Yeah, great. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Make sure to subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. New episodes will be released every Thursday. For more information on everything we've discussed today, go to gardenersworld.com 